to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. So glad to have you with me. And we are going to be exploring the five senses in today's podcast. We're going to start, well, I don't know if we'll get to all five of them, but you are listening. So let's consider that an exploration of one. And we're going to start with the sense of smell. I have a guest on the line. His name is Ernesto Collado. He is the founder of a company in the Catalonia region of Spain called Brava Nariz. And welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. Ernesto, nice to speak with you. Well, it's absolutely nice to speak with you too, Pauline. Thank you very much. Well, and many congratulations. I learned about your company because I read a wonderful article about it in the New York Times. And the New York Times called you an evangelist of odor. <laughs> I know they meant that as a compliment. What does that mean to you? Well, uh, it means a lot because when I really started with all this project, I really had this sensation first uh, it was something that I was feeling myself, that the sense of smell was absolutely undervalued in our society. We, we live our lives uh, thinking that smell is, well, just something that it's there maybe to, to, to annoy us most huh. of the times, but uh, not yeah. to enjoy too much. And, uh, yeah, since the moment I realized how important it was to have a richer perception of life... Well, I started uh, to get obsessed with the idea of, of communicating to everybody how, how nice and how important the sense of smell was. So this is it. Yes, and you have a history in your family with the sense of smell, right? Yes. Your grandfather was, was a very famous perfume. I don't know, how do you say it in, in Spanish? Perfumery? I mean, that, that sounds French to me. Perfumista. We perfumista. say perfumista, yeah. But... Uh, uh, the, the, the thing is that uh, you know that uh, perfumers like happened with uh, with cooks. In fact, at the beginning of the of the twentieth century, they were not famous. Famous was not the word because mm. nobody knew their names. Eh? You right. know, you you knew the name of the owner of the restaurant, but not from the cook. Sure. Now this thing changed completely, and perfumers are a little bit stars eh, in a very, let's, <laughs> the, let's say, elite uh, uh, group of people. But uh, they are considered like like artists, like stars, like happens with cooks. But with my grandfather, it was true that he he formulated some of the best-selling colognes and perfumes from the moment, eh, in the beginning of the 20th century. We are talking about 19. 2019 eh? right and uh, and yeah i have this uh, this tradition that is very strong in my family because my grandfather was uh, besides being a really good perfumer he was a uh, yeah he was a very curious uh, man very very interesting guy yeah and then you had a uh, you you got sick, not with COVID. This was many years before COVID, yeah. and and you lost your sense of smell, right? It's true. It's true. I I I have something very strange that it's called phantosmia. Phantosmia uh, produces an, an olfactory uh, hallucination. So my brain makes up a smell that doesn't exist in reality. Huh. Uh, so in a way, it's it's a kind of an anosmia. 
since it doesn't let me smell anything else. So imagine, I, I was like almost for two years smelling this only smell, which usually is not very pleasant. Eh? Ah. Uh, uh, it can go to what the, the doctors call a cacosmia, which is literally smell of shit or shit smell. It was not my case, but it, it was not a nice smell. So imagine right. two years smelling only that smell that was in my head and okay. not, being, not being able to smell, for example, the head of my little kids when I was bathing them or, mm. or, the, or the, I don't know, the skin of my wife or, 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 the, or, or, the, or the spring blooming in my, in my homeland. But you were able to teach yourself to uh, uh, understand smells once again through smelling, was it rosemary? Uh, yes. I, I, my, my neurologist uh, uh, said that the only way, and in fact, I think it is the only way to recover that uh, the smell uh, and to train my brain in order to separate reality from, from the hallucination was practicing. Eh? Our, our sense of uh, smell, it's a little bit like a, like a muscle that you can, you can practice. So uh, he told me, you have to smell things that are nice to you constantly and, 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 and very, uh, you know, every morning, 15 minutes. So this is what I did. I started with the plants I had uh, near me and the plants that, in fact, re remembered me, my grandfather. Uh, and that, that was rosemary. Rosemary was the first plant that I ever, after two years and a half, I could recognize. So imagine it wow. was like, like something was hitting my brain, bam, like a, an aromatic punch. Mm. And, uh, and, I, and I started to cry, of course. It was like, like something was exploding inside of me. Wow. And so since then, you have put together tours to introduce people to the smells of Catalonia. Now, we have mostly a, an American listenership. They may yeah. not know where Catalonia is. Can you give them a little bit of, of a lesson of where in Spain that is? Well, yes, it's easy. It's in the northeast corner of Spain, and it's uh, uh, the border with France. So we have the Pyrenees at the north. We have the Mediterranean Sea and the famous Costa Brava, which is especially known for Dali, for example, is all those sure. skies that you could you can see in Dali's uh, uh, tableaus are my skies, uh, the Empurda skies. And uh, uh, to the west, it, it's, it borders with the volcanic region of La Garrocha. So um, what happens with the Empurda is it's incredibly rich in nuances. Uh, as I told you, we have from the Pyrenees, so you can be... In, in 45 minutes, which is my case, I can be uh, skiing in, wow. in, 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 at the beginning of May or, or the end of April. And then with one hour and 20 minutes, I'm having a swim in the Mediterranean Sea. <laughs> and and this, is, this makes this region absolutely unique. So when you take people around, part of what I read in the New York Times is you feel in contemporary culture that artificial smells have become too prominent, that yes. people are not really smelling the smells of nature anymore. And so that's what you, you concentrate on, right? Yes, this is it. For example, one of the advices we give to every, everyone who, who, who wants to participate in our olfactory experience is that please 
don't perfume yourself. This may sound ah. obvious, but it's not because, for example, we clean our hair with shampoos that are highly perfumed. We, we put uh, uh, hydratant uh, uh, creams that are highly perfumed. And all those perfumes that surround us and that makes us think that we, or, or makes us feel that we are in the middle of a well-smelling cloud, with, huh. uh, I would say that if you could see me with uh, dots uh, on the top, because uh, this is, uh, there is for me always a doubt because it's a fake, nice mm. uh, smell. So all yeah. these things uh, really avoid uh, yourself from having a real uh, olfactory experience. So I, I really, um, uh, as a tip, I always say to the people, come even without the shower, you know, if, if, if you can do it, come without the shower and you will get the best of the experience. You will smell others. You will smell your your couple. There is a lot of people who comes to our walks that suddenly tells me, you know what? I, I, I really didn't know how my couple really smelled. Huh. And and this is incredible, you know, that after living, I don't know, twenty two years or or whatever with your with your with your partner, you suddenly discover how how she or he smells. Yeah, wow. And so you go around and you smell the different natural things that that you come upon, but you also tell them a little bit about the natural history of the yes. region, right? Yes, I, I'm a, a, a self-taught botanic. Uh, this is something that I inherited from my grandfather and my father. I always walked around since I was eight, nine years old with a guide, with a plants guide. So this is my, my, my passion, really, eh? plants, the, 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 the plant kingdom. Uh, so this is one of the things I, I, I explain to people, all the plants that give their incredible aromas to the landscapes. But also I explained them about the history of, of the landscape, uh, which is absolutely, of course, bound to people, people living right. in that landscape. Yeah. So in a way, it's a, it's a very interesting way to dive, dive into a, 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 a specific landscape through the nose. And this is how I would explain really what we do. Uh, you mm. get really into the natural landscape, but also... Also, I talk a lot about the uses of these plants, uh, which which is impossible not to bound to 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 the human beings uh, around them. No, sure. Uh, so at the end, it's a quite a, a socio cultural uh, uh, kind of uh, yeah discovery eh? through well, the so social them. cultural and perhaps. Uh, uh, animistic or animal. You say that a lot of people don't really want to think of themselves as smellers because that makes them feel too much part of the animal kingdom and yes. not human enough. This is true, Pauline. You see, I think everything we do since we wake, wake up, it's an attempt to forget that we are Animals that, I don't know, uh, uh, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, we, we were smelling each other's asses and that, <laughs> and that walk in two legs. So right. everything we do, we wake up, we have coffee, uh, we clean ourselves, we put all our makeup, we dressed up eh, in order to, okay, I'm not a, a wild man from the caves. 
So uh, uh, we could explain history, the whole human history, as a constant attempt to to get away from our animal condition. Eh? Right. The writing, yeah. sculpture, art, everything. It's a way to really convince ourselves that we are different, that we are superior, that we are something else. And we are. I think we humans, we are able to do incredible things. Sure. But, but we, we forget that we are nature. It's not that we are a part of nature. We are nature. Mm. And... Uh, Yeah, this is something that it's it's uh, it's difficult. It's difficult to really live with that consciousness, and uh, yeah. and this is something that, that I, I strongly try to transmit uh, during the walk. And I think it's something that, uh, according to the people who came and already did it, I think we 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 do you it. succeed. Yes, I think we succeed with that. Yes, absolutely. Well, if somebody wanted to take your walk, how, what? How do they find information of it about it? Do you have a, a web address that we can give? Yes, you can. You can always look at our website, which is bravanarith.com, and then go to the walks page, and there you will you will see all the information. There is all the explanation, and you will see pictures. And um, and also lately, uh, also from the from the New York Times article, they called me several very special and uh, I wouldn't say luxurious because we are talking about another type of luxury, the luxury of the true wealth. Huh. And this type of 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 agencies, I would say, uh, travel agencies that look for something absolutely different that it's beyond luxury. Uh, and uh, and in a really exclusive experience, we are now in contact, and we are about to to organize some groups. So I think in in the in the upcoming months, probably there will be the possibility for United States citizens to, uh, for example, to 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 buy a, a special trip uh, with Brava Nariz from the United States. Oh, great! Okay, yeah. well, terrific. Well, it's such a beautiful area of Spain. I once biked uh, from, oh my goodness, Girona ah. uh, to different parts of nice. Catalonia. And yes. it, it was amazing. Uh, just, you know, Roman ruins and medieval towns and beautiful seascapes. It, it's just a, a very special part of Europe. Well, thank you so much, Ernesto, for appearing on the Frommer Travel Show. Thank you so much, Pauline. I think what you're doing, it's wonderful. And, uh, and I'm, <laughs> I'm absolutely happy to be part of that. wrote an article for the Chicago Tribune on one of my favorite places in the world. She is Nancy Moreland, and she wrote a very provocatively titled article. It is Travel to a Historically Feminist Island. Welcome to the Travel Show, Nancy. Thank you, Pauline. I appreciate you asking me. And the historically feminist island was the home of Ahab, is Nantucket. I think that premise will come as a surprise to many of our listeners. 
I believe so, because I think we associate Nantucket with masculinity, rugged masculinity of the sailors, the whaling industry, you know, Moby Dick. And I was just really fascinated to kind of scratch the surface and find this really strong history of um, very influential women. Well, in the article, you quote a historian saying that during the era you're talking about, which is the whaling era, and I'm wondering, uh, do you know the dates for that, roughly? Well, the the golden age, they say the golden age of whaling uh, on Nantucket was the late, actually the late 1700s to kind of the 1840s. It was the Uh whaling, it became the whaling capital of the world and became renowned throughout the world because the Nantucketers sailed so far afield, really, from from this little island off the coast of Massachusetts. And it made it one of the richest places on the planet because uh, they needed the oil for lamps. So, So whale oil was incredibly important to the economy, not only of Nantucket, but the United States at that time. And so why were the women so important? Obviously, they weren't on the ships. Uh, No, actually, there were a couple of women. There are rare examples, of, but there were, I believe, two women who did spend some time on whaling ships because their husbands were captains. But uh, you're right, Pauline, it's really interesting that there's really three factors, uh, from what I could tell, that all kind of came together to create this perfect storm for you know, to empower women at a time when most were not very empowered. And basically, it started even in the 17th uh, century with the introduction of Quakerism to the island. Mm. Because the Quakers believed that women, well, first of all, they believed that the soul did not have a sex. Therefore, women were the spiritual and intellectual equals to men. And a woman was responsible for bringing Quakerism to the island of Nantucket. That was Mary Coffin Starbuck. So she was instrumental in helping introduce Quakerism through a gentleman that she was a Quaker leader in the Quaker church, and she brought him over to the island. So again, the Quakers believed that women were the spiritual and intellectual equals to men, and they also believed in education for women. Hmm. So uh, little girls would be educated right alongside their brothers. So that was really the foundation that allowed this empowerment. And then, as you've mentioned, the whaling industry, the men would often be gone for two to three years at a time. Yeah. So the women, you know, it was an economic necessity. They had to keep the businesses running. They had to keep the island, you know, socially and economically afloat while the men were away. So they just naturally kind of evolved into leadership roles and then the third factor, Pauline, was isolation. This was uh, a frontier economy. And as you know, because you visited the island many times before, many times. it's yeah. pretty isolated. Um, and especially in those days before they had an airport or ferries. So right. um, they were sort of this little isolated incubator for female empowerment. And they had some major figures come off Nantucket in a number of different professions. Uh, for example, in the medical profession, who who was uh, the, the trailblazer from Nantucket? Well, Lydia Folger Fowler, and Folger, she is related to the Folger Coffee family. Uh, <laughs> uh, she was the first American-born woman to receive a medical degree. 
And then she also went on, uh, she was the first female professor of medicine at a U.S. college. So she, I believe she was born like in 1822, lived to 1879. She actually died caring for people because uh, she would work in the very poor sections of major cities helping with public health. And so unfortunately, she died. She was exposed to some illness and things, but she died doing what she was passionate about. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, she was she was one who was uh, born on Nantucket. From Nantucket. Tell us about a couple of other ones. Well, of course, I've mentioned Mary Poppins Starbuck. Yep. She was known as Great Mary to hmm. her neighbors, kind of coined that name, uh, because she was considered so wise. They sought her counsel on a lot of things. She was married. She had children. In fact, she gave birth to the first white child on the island of Nantucket. And she, huh. could, read, she could read and write, and her husband could not. And wow. they had a pretty egalitarian uh, marriage, from what I can tell. But she, because she could read and write, she was very influential. And then I think one of the shining stars, no pun intended, is Mariah Mitchell. Yeah. And uh, Mariah was America's first female astronomer. She was the first professor ever hired to teach at Vassar College. She was just way advanced. I mean, she was kind of a child prodigy. She hmm. discovered a comet. I think she was in her 20s when she wow. discovered a comet. So, um, you know, that's that's another example. Um, Lucretia Coffin Mott was, we often hear about Elizabeth Cady Stanton and her contributions to the suffragette movement and women's rights, but uh, Lucretia was a mentor to Elizabeth. And uh, she was an abolitionist. She was a women's rights activist. She helped co-write the Declaration of Sentiments for um, the first uh, Seneca Falls Convention, you know, the first meeting where the suffragettes really organized. Right. So I guess, you know, all this points to the fact that the women of Nantucket weren't only influential on their tiny little island. They were influential, really, in social movements that covered the whole globe. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things, one of the pleasures of visiting Nantucket is that they really do bring that history to life. Uh, They don't hide their history. This is a place that when whaling started to fail as an industry because electricity was developed, they saw the writing on the wall and historically preserved everything on the island because they knew that tourism was going to be their next big industry. And so they very purposefully have created a way for visitors to find out about these uh, great women and the men of the island too. Like like Mariah Mitchell, she has a, a little museum to her, right? She does. It's, it's really fascinating. It's located at 1 Vestal Street, which is in Old Town, Nantucket. And it's just a delightful place to visit um, because it's Many of the artifacts, her personal effects are still there. I thought it was amusing that, um, I mean, she was such a learned individual, but they have some of her beer mugs. <laughs> and she felt, that, <laughs> she felt that that enhanced her health. And, um, you know, some of, the, some of the awards that she earned and uh, things of that nature. So it's, it's a fascinating museum to visit. Yeah, and there's also the Whaling Museum, and they lead fabulous tours of the island, uh, often going into some of these, the houses that these women and others 
lived in, uh, which is an extraordinary benefit to visitors, I think. I believe so. And, you know, I think it's fascinating. You mentioned that when the whaling industry started to die out, you know, over time, the Nantucketers were smart enough to realize we should preserve our history. This is really unique. And I think that's pretty remarkable that they figured that out you know, yeah. in the 1800s and started to build that tourism industry. And of course, they had people who would go out there to summer you know, to places like Sconset and enjoy the beaches and enjoy that beautiful environment in the summer. So, but they were pretty ahead of their time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And in your piece, you say that the the best way to end a day in Nantucket is to go out to Mattaquet so you can watch the sunset. And when you're there, you can pay homage to Mattaquet Millie. On my last visit to Nantucket, which was just this summer, I went for the first time, I can't believe I hadn't gone before, to the Life-Saving Museum, mm-hmm. because this was a place where the Life-Saving Corps were, and Millie was incredibly important to that enterprise. Yeah, she was quite quite a character. Um, I, I did not have time to visit that museum while I was there, which I had, but she was talk about the salty dogs of maritime culture and (laughs) she was a real salty character, but she just for years, she helped the coast guard, uh, apparently run that rescue station. She was sort of of a lookout uh, on the beach and she would help the young recruits, you know, when they came over, uh, with training and things of that nature. And she was an incredibly strong woman. And so I think Mattaquet has kind of adopted her. You know, she lived to be quite old. She, I think until the 1980s, I believe, she was still still living. I mean, she, she's she's more of a 20th century figure. She is, Millie Jewett, and she was really a local legend. It contributed yeah. a lot. Yeah, and, and if you go to the Life Saving Museum, they have a wonderful video about her life where you get to see her. She lived alone, but not really, because she had something like uh, 10 dogs and 15 cats, and uh, she would just watch because Nantucket is surrounded by very dangerous shoals. So it's one of the parts of the U.S. that has had dozens upon dozens of shipwrecks over the years. And so they have to take life-saving very seriously there. Well, it was a delightful article in the Chicago Tribune. I, I urge everybody to read it. And thank you so much, Nancy, for appearing on the Frommer Travel Show. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you asking me, and, um, and thanks for your interest. And that is it for this week's show. I'm knocking off a little early this week because I'm doing something that I would never, ever recommend any of you do travel-wise, which is driving for 12 to 15 hours. I'm doing it because I'm dropping my younger daughter off at college way, way far away with way, way too many things for her dorm room. And uh, so many things we realized we couldn't fly. Ah, well. Thank you, as always, for listening. And to those who are traveling, hopefully in a less crowded car for less of an amount of time, maybe on a plane, maybe on a boat, who knows. But if you're traveling, I wish you all a hearty bon voyage.
Change.